You know, recently I was reminded of the heart of what our neighborhood vision is really all about. When we were celebrating my son Ben's fourth birthday, we laid out all of his gifts that morning and he came down so excited to see all that he'd gotten. And right as he sees them, he turned to his older brother and he said, I'm gonna share all of these gifts with you, brother. Oh, that's so cute, I love Ben. Yes, he's pretty fantastic. Now, while I wish that my kids were always that kind and generous to each other, in the moment, it was a great picture to me of the kind of life that God has called his church to. See, God has poured his love and his grace into our lives, his gifts, not just for our own benefit, but so that we can in turn, as his people, become a blessing to our neighbors, to share what he's done in us with them. Exactly, and in this year, we have seen the generosity and love of our God continue to grow here amongst our Chapel Street family. And we believe that this campus is the next step forward in continuing to share the good news of Christ with our neighbors. See, that's what God's plan for us is as his church that we would give our hearts to loving and serving our neighbors, seeking their welfare and praying for them. This is how God grows his kingdom and makes an impact by working in the hearts of his people, like you and me, to make us a blessing to our neighbors. There are so many ways we believe God is going to do that here in North Aurora, from regular weekly worship to unique opportunities during this week to get involved in the lives of our neighbors. Just as we see this building behind us being built up, God is building the next step of kingdom impact here at Chapel Street. Chapel Street family, this project is about so much more than myself or Jen or those who will soon join us here. This is God's call to all of us who call Chapel Street our home to consider how we might be a part of what he's continuing to do in our midst. I want to invite you to continue praying for us as Jen and I begin to prepare a core team to help lead ministry here at Chapel Street North Aurora. Pray that God would draw us as a team together and that he would draw in the right people to help make an impact right where we are. Please pray that God would open up opportunities for us to keep getting to know our neighbors and connecting the community around our new campus. And please continue to prayerfully consider how you might support this next step in our neighborhood vision. God's writing this next chapter of his story here at Chapel Street through the faithful generosity and service of families just like yours. We are so grateful for your encouragement and your support, and we can't wait to show you what's next here at Chapel Street, North Aurora. See you See soon. soon. We are excited, right along with Pastor Andrew and Jen Lindsay, as they prepare the launch team for our next um, campus as a church family. As you know, our vision as a church is to be a family of neighborhood churches, uh, all sharing the same vision, to share the gospel uh, with the people living in our community so they can come to know uh, the living hope we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we are getting ready to give birth to another family member, in a sense. Uh, this next campus is scheduled to launch sometime this fall uh, down in North Aurora. Uh, you can find out more about that if you don't know about it by going to our website. But we're preparing right now to do that, and uh, we are in the process of uh, raising the funds to uh, finish that reconstruction of that campus. Um, and we have a generous, anonymous donor who is matching every gift that the rest of us give between now and June the 1st. So whatever uh, you can do or can consider doing, it gets doubled, and we are getting very close to having that, uh, that new campus paid off with no debt at all, and we are very grateful for that. So thank you so much for your generosity. I also want to rem remind you that today is a communion Sunday. At the end of our service, we will be celebrating communion, and we have these little communion packs out in the lobby. If you weren't able to get one, um, you can either sneak back and get one, or if you don't have one, raise your hand in just a minute, and maybe Dawit can come in and give you one. Anybody need one up here on this side? Uh, can you come in on this side and bring a couple up here? Just keep your hands up there. Yeah. 
Fred, you were probably late and hurried into church, so you didn't pick one up, right? Okay, yeah. Just teasing. These are also another little annoying thing we have during COVID is doing these little packs, but we'll do them later in service. Just keep it near you, and I'll help you. Anybody on this side need one? Okay, thank you very much. Well, a number of years ago, uh, many of you know, I worked my way through graduate school. This is pre-seminary, pre-marriage, by coaching a little basketball at Taylor University as a volunteer assistant coach. And one of my favorite stories of that time uh, was a young man that we affectionately called Big Red. He was a big guy, about six foot four, shock of red hair, and uh, he came out for the team one fall. He had not played on the varsity team before. But he'd been in school for a couple of years, he played intramurals, and he'd sort of made it known that um, he thought he could not only make the varsity team, but be one of the best players on the varsity team. Uh, he had these sort of dreams of glory. Uh, but to do that, he had to participate in a month-long conditioning program that all the players were required to do prior to even touching a basketball. Four weeks of running. Lots and lots of running. Sprints, distance running, everything you can imagine. And it was pretty grueling. And it was designed to be grueling to sort of separate the men from the boys when it comes to effort and conditioning and leadership and all that. But he came out for the team. And we noticed right away that uh, when he thought uh, the coaches were watching him, he would run especially hard. And he would actually win some of those sprints and races. Uh, But when he didn't think we were watching or couldn't see, he would kind of slack off and dog it and save his energy for when we were watching. And we sort of noticed that, that he liked to bask in the glory of winning those races when we were watching. Well, uh, Big Red met his Waterloo when we uh, had a day toward the end of the conditioning program that was called the 12-minute run day. And 12-minute run is simple. You just line guys up on a track, an oval track, and you blow the whistle, and they run as far and as fast as they can in 12 minutes. doesn't sound like it's very difficult. I mean, 12 minutes, how hard can that be? But a 12-minute run is hard. It's no fun. And it separates out those who are in shape from those who are not in shape very quickly. So coach blows the whistle. Big Red takes off, and he's at the front of the pack for almost the entire first lap. So the first minute and a half, minute 45 or so. By the second lap, he's dropped back, farther back in the pack. By the third lap, about minute five or six, he's dead last and falling behind quickly. By about minute eight or nine, he's being lapped by the other guys, and he's barely moving. And the standing rule in the basketball program then, it was kind of an old school coach, Hall of Famer, but old school coach, was that if you stopped running at any time during the conditioning program, you automatically cut yourself from the team. Uh, It didn't matter how slow you ran, didn't matter if you're walking, it didn't matter if you got sick on the side of the track, just keep moving. That was the rule. If you stop, you're done. And sure enough, nine minutes into the 12-minute run, Big Red's all the way on the other side of the track, and he stops running, turns around, and starts walking back to where we're standing as coaches. We looked at each other like, well, he just cut himself. Let's see what he has to say. After all the braggadocio about being a star player and so forth. By the time he got to where we were standing, he was still breathing hard, and he wore glasses. He was like, coach, I've been praying about this a lot lately, and I just don't have any peace about playing this year. And the head coach, quick as a whip, and I wish I could think this fast, without, without skipping a beat, said back to him, son, middle of a 12-minute run's no place to be looking for peace. And I love that story because uh, Big Red dreamed of glory. He wanted to be a star. He believed he was a star, but he wasn't prepared. He wasn't prepared for the test of a 12-minute run. Therefore, because he wasn't prepared, he never had the chance to experience glory. 
And that's what we're going to see today. We're still in our series from 1 Peter called Living Hope. And as you know, this is a letter, ancient letter, written in the first century, about 64 A.D. or so, by the Apostle Peter. And he's writing to Jewish background believers who are scattered all around the ancient Roman Empire. And he's reminding them that they've been born again into a living hope. And his letter is designed to encourage them about how to continue to live out that hope in the midst of of a hopeless world. Last week, Pastor Joe introduced us to what he called the theology of suffering that we see in this letter. Uh, and today, Peter uh, drives that theme a little more deeply, and so we're going to get into it more today uh, under the theme of be prepared. 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, I'm going to be reading uh, the first 19 verses eventually, but we're focused first on the verses 1 through 6. So just follow along on the screens as I read. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We'll stop there for now. And the first thing Peter is telling us, I think, is be prepared. Be prepared. Uh, This past Tuesday, uh, Lorena and I celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary, and that day reminded me uh, that just two months after we were married, back in 1985, we went on a six-month short-term mission assignment to South America, specifically to Santa Cruz, Bolivia, in South America. Now, I had been to Bolivia the summer before, and I knew what to expect, but Lorena had never traveled there. And I spent the months leading up to our wedding sort of telling her how awesome it would be, what a great adventure it was going to be for the two of us early in our marriage to do that, to go live in a developing world country. And it was an adventure. But I think I spent most of the time convincing her how awesome it would be, the culture and the people and all that, that it made it sound a little bit like Disney World, I think. Um, And looking back, I didn't focus very much on the actual real challenges we were going to face. Uh, that we were going to the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere at that time. So fast forward to our very first full day in the country in Santa Cruz. And before long, uh, the smells of the open sewers and the rotting garbage eventually overwhelmed her. And there I was with my brand new bride getting sick on the side of the road. And I realized I had not prepared her well. Had not prepared her for what was actually going to be our experience there. I had not prepared her for the challenge, for the discomfort, in a sense for the suffering that was coming. Peter's doing that here. He says in verses 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, as we've said through this series, Peter's writing to first-generation followers of Christ uh, uh, living in the Roman Empire, and they are facing... Two great challenges that aren't that different from the challenges that we face today. But the first challenge was they were surrounded by a pagan culture that did not understand them, that actually had come to fear them. 
because uh, uh, they didn't understand the faith. They didn't understand why they didn't bow the knee to, to, to the emperor. They didn't understand why they talked about uh, eating flesh and drinking blood in, in, in their, their holy communion services. Uh, and, that, and they were growing increasingly hostile toward these small bands of, of early believers. The second challenge is that they were also immersed in a, in an, uh, an immoral and decidedly ungodly culture where all manner of sexual sin and idolatry was not only accepted, but actually celebrated. So Peter says, arm yourselves. Now, that's a military term. Uh, it, it, it's what you would say to soldiers heading into battle. Pick up your weapons. Get ready to fight. But Peter's saying our preparation is not physical, rather it's spiritual. It's an inner preparation uh, to prepare ourselves for the struggle, for the fight that lies ahead. And he says they are to arm themselves with three things. First, with the will of God. Verse 2, he says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I want to take just a, just a minute to sort of demystify this phrase, the will of God. I think often when we use that phrase uh, in our culture, uh, we think of things like, uh, questions like, who should I marry? What's the will of God for me there? Uh, what job should I take? What, what house should we buy? This one or that one? And while all those decisions are significant and we should seek uh, God's guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, those are not the questions Peter's talking about here. Uh, he's talking about something else. When the writers of the New Testament talk about the will of God, they're talking about what they already know with great certainty that God wants for them. They're talking about what we already know about God's will. Let me just give you a few examples. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is God's will? That all people come to the knowledge of the truth and are saved. Another one, 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's the will of God for your life? Rejoice, pray, give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What's the will of God for my life? that I be sanctified, that I be increasingly made holy in the image of Christ. 1 Peter 2, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What's the will of God? To do that which is good and right. Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit, that is what God wants to grow in every single one of us all the time, without exception, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Peter says, arm yourselves first with the will of God. Secondly, he says, arm yourself with holiness. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, that phrase, if you go to try to do the research in the ancient Greek, is a really difficult phrase to translate into English and make it sound as powerful as it should be. 
But the, the literal translation is that you do not run with them in the same, same wanton wastefulness of life. That you do not run with them in the same unsaved prodigality. And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Uh, this makes me, uh, reminds me of, of a story my dad likes to talk about when he uh, got into running years ago. He was in his probably mid-50s, and everybody was running, kind of a jogging craze. So he started jogging because to be healthier and get in shape and all that. So he started running. He lived in central Florida at the time. And he worked himself up over a couple of years to running four or five miles a day. And he says that one day, uh, toward the end of that time, uh, he was running, and he was a couple miles into his run. It was central Florida. It was summer. It was 90 degrees and 95% humidity. And he had run about halfway through his run, and he realized it dawned on him. All of a sudden, uh, he says, this is not fun. And so he stopped. He turned around and he walked to him just like Forrest Gump. He just stopped. And to this day, he hasn't run another step since. He just stopped. And that's what Peter's saying here. He said, it's time to stop. It's time to stop. Enough of that. We're done with sin. We're done running with the crowd, running with the culture. Now, it doesn't mean we never sin again or we're perfect, but it does mean we no longer just run with the crowd without thinking. We no longer see sin as just our default mode. Sin is not our master. We've been born again that because we were once dead in sin. Now we've been made alive. We have been empowered and called to be holy and set apart. And by the way, especially for the younger people here, uh, the world around us, the wor world around you in school or in college or wherever, often will not understand and will malign or will ridicule you that you don't do the things they do. You don't talk the way they do. You don't behave the way they do. But in the long run, radical goodness, a life of holiness is attractive. Is attractive. And that's deep down what people want. So, thirdly, he says, arm yourselves with the gospel. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. It means spiritually dead, far from God that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter says, know the gospel. Be armed with the gospel for yourself and for others. Now, what is the gospel? I'll tell you what many people think the gospel is. Right now in our culture, people think the gospel is something like this. Live your truth. Be your best self now. Discover what's true and be true to yourself. Or, do more good than bad in your life, and it'll all come out good in the end. Those all sound good, but they're not the gospel. What is the gospel? Let's go back to our memory verse, 1 Peter 1, chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. If you can say it with me without looking at the screen, try. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the gospel. The gospel is not about trying to be a better person. It's about death and resurrection. Died to sin, raised to new life. So how do we prepare ourselves for an unknown future? What does Peter want these young believers to, to be prepared with? For the possibility of suffering. He says, arm yourselves with the will of God, arm yourself with holiness, and arm yourself with the gospel. Be prepared. The second thing he tells us is to love well. Love well. I spent my first year out of college, again in my single days, living in Geneva, Switzerland, and I was playing and coaching for a club team there. Um, give you just a minute, see if you can find me in the picture. This may help out a little bit. 
Now, does that guy look like he's got it all going on or what? That's the 22-year-old version of myself. So I was living alone in a foreign country, trying to learn French on the street with my friends, trying to, to just get along and totally on my own for my spiritual support. But I found a little English-speaking Baptist church, uh, and I would go there because at least I could, I could be in church and hear, hear English. Because everybody there spoke English. The pastor was British, and there were, there were Canadians and South Africans and, and Australians going there. So I went. But there I met this Scottish couple named Douglas and Fiona Marr. Uh, they were in their 60s, all their children were grown, but he was there on a work assignment. And they did something very unique. Uh, after I'd been there for a couple of weeks, I realized that they invited every Sunday after church anybody who was an expat living without family in the area, particularly younger people, could all come to their house for Sunday dinner. So I started doing that. And I soon found out that going to the Mars for Sunday dinner wasn't just dinner. It was like the rest of the day in the Scottish style. They would have a, a nice dinner, usually some sort of roast and potatoes, which is great because I really was a lousy cook for, uh, for myself at that time. And then you would just hang out. We'd, we'd talk and we'd have discussions and then we'd take a walk in the countryside, come back for tea time, which was tea and cookies and cakes and stuff. And we wouldn't get home till like 9 o'clock at night. And I started to look forward to those Sundays, not just so I could hear English, but because the Mars gave me a sense of family. I think. And I don't think I fully realized it at the time, but they gave me not only a sense of family, but they taught me something about the church. Because the Mars had the great gift of hospitality. Verse 7, Paul, uh, Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Now if you're paying attention, you should be thinking, well, Peter wrote that 2,000 years ago. What's up with that? Why hasn't the end come yet if it's at hand? Well, when Peter talks about the end of all things, he's talking about what the Bible calls the last days. And theologically speaking, the last days refers to the time between the first coming of Jesus, the child in the manger in Bethlehem, and the second coming of Jesus, which will be on the clouds of heaven in great glory. Anyone living in that time frame is living in the last days. So Peter was living in the last days, and you and I are living in the last days. In fact, the whole Bible ends, next to the last verse of the Bible, Jesus himself says, behold, I am coming soon, he says. Now, there are two ways we can understand the end of all things. One is the end of all things, that is, the new heaven and new earth, the inauguration of, of the second coming of Christ, or the end of our earthly lives, whichever comes first. And twice in this passage, Peter refers to time. In verse 2, he says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that's the rest of our earthly lives, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3 says, For the time that is past, the time we've already lived, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's simply talking about the time of our lives. The time we've already lived and the time we have yet to live. And he's making a point. I remember uh, when our oldest son was about eight years old or so, I um, was just thinking about the future. It dawned on me that I had about ten years left. If he was going to go away to college at 18, I had about ten years left until he left our home. Plenty of time, right? 
And then I did a little math. I uh, started to add up um, all the hours that we had left, and I multiplied 10 years times 365 times 24 hours, and I had 87,600 hours left. But then I started to subtract hours. All the hours he was going to be away at school, all the hours I was going to be away at work, all the hours we were going to spend sleeping. And then I realized I had far less than 10 years. Actually, I had less than four years left. And Peter's making the same point here. He's saying that time is short. We don't know. And since time is short, he says we ought to invest that time, whatever time we have, in four ways. First, he says prayer. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Not make your bucket list so you make sure you do all the things you wanted to do in your lifetime. Not uh, supply your underground bunker that you've established for the Holocaust with 10 years of supplies. No, he says pray. He says, be clear-minded, see things the way they really are, understand what's happening so that you can be more effective in your prayer. And by the way, this is what Jesus asked of his disciples on that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, could you not watch with me for one hour? He was asking them to pray with him for one hour. Peter says, pray. Secondly, he says, love one another. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, That means fervently, strenuously, with all you've got, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now here he's talking about the power of love to forgive. He's saying the time is too short to harbor bitterness or resentment. And remember, this is Peter. Three times he failed Jesus in one night. But Peter was forgiven by the overwhelming and grace-filled love of Christ. Love one another. Thirdly, he says, in the time you have left, show hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. To Peter, hospitality was a lot more than punching cookies after church. It was a lot more than that. It meant survival for the early believers. Because remember, persecution was ramping up, and they needed to be able to trust one another, even if they didn't know each other. The word hospitality means love strangers. And in the early Christian world, it meant survival for the believers to have people who would let them take them in and feed them and care for them. Finally, he says, use the time you have left to serve one another. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Literally, that is the manifold or many-colored grace of God. Makes me think about, um, remember the big boxes of Crayola crayons, the 64 colors one? Remember that? Am I too old? You know, a little sharpener and stuff. But 64 colors, the variety of God's grace, he's saying. So that uh, uh, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that every believer, every believer has been given gifts to serve. We call them spiritual gifts or enablements that come from the Holy Spirit. They're gifts from God himself. And all our gifts are different. Some are upfront gifts, really noticeable gifts. Some are sort of behind-the-scenes gifts. But every gift matters. Every gift is important. And all our gifts are given to us to be able to serve someone else. I remember Douglas and Fiona Marr all those years back ago in Europe. They were not pastors, they weren't missionaries, they weren't preachers, they weren't extraordinary leaders, they didn't write books, they didn't hold seminars. But they had a gift, and their gift was hospitality, and that gift played a role in changing my life. Never think that your gifts don't matter. Your gift matters. And thirdly, Peter says, 
Rejoice in glory. Rejoice in glory. Be prepared, love well, and rejoice in glory. I've talked a lot about my younger brother, Joe, who's a lead pastor at Christ Community Chapel in Hudson, Ohio, a wonderful church. But he has always throughout his life been a combination of sort of fearlessness and curiosity. And when he was a young boy, that was a kind of a dangerous combination. Uh, when he was just five or six and just uh, enjoying the new thrill of riding a two-wheeler for the first time, he was riding down a hill near our home, and he says that suddenly, the thought suddenly crossed his curious mind, what would happen if I stuck my foot in the spokes of the front tire? Yeah, he thought that, and he did, and he found out. And he flipped over the handlebars, skidded to a stop on his face, and I still remember him walking back up our driveway crying and, and just scraped up from up and down his face. Now, we all know there are different kinds of suffering in our world. There's suffering we bring on ourselves when we stick our foot in the spokes. But there's suffering that comes sort of randomly, that is undeserved. Suffering like a pandemic or cancer or maybe even religious persecution. Did you know that right now there are 340 million Christians living in our world today under serious persecution just for their faith? That's as many people as live in our country under persecution. Did you know that an estimated 5,678 Christians were killed in Nigeria alone in one year just because they were Christians? Did you know that today in North Korea, an estimated 70,000 believers are imprisoned just for their faith? So Peter here says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, many scholars believe Peter's actually referring here to the fire of Rome that took place in about 64 A.D. It was a fire started by the emperor himself because he wanted to rebuild part of the city, but he needed a scapegoat, so he blamed it on the Christians because the people already didn't trust them and didn't understand them. So he blamed it on the Christians, launching a decades-long, brutal time of persecution for the church that ended up with Peter's own execution. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also re rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That always makes me smile because... We kind of get the murderer and evildoer and thief, but meddler? That's like a, the town busybody, the town gossip. Well, so be careful, right? It says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, there's all kinds of things here. Let me just focus on three things. Peter says, first, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. I never cease to be surprised by how many people seem surprised that suffering exists. In fact, suffering, uh, that pain exists, that suffering exists, is one of the great objections to faith in God in our culture, right? You know how the question goes. Why would an all-powerful and all-loving God allow such suffering and pain in the world? You've heard that question, right? You may have a friend or a family member who said that to you, and that's the reason they refuse to believe. Well, the answer, of course, is in the book. 
Answer is in the book. The Bible tells us what's gone wrong with the world. It starts right in the beginning, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. It tells what's gone wrong with me, what's gone wrong with you. And the Bible goes on to tell us what God has done about it, that he's entered into the brokenness of the world, what he is doing now through his spirit and through his people, the church and the world, and what he will do in the new heaven and new earth, which is eliminate and he wipe out all sin and death and pain and tears. It's all in the book. Skip Heitzig, a pastor down in New Mexico, says, the question is not, why is there suffering? The question is not, where is God when it hurts? The question is, where is no God when it hurts? What he means is this. Without God, without faith in a good God who is sovereign and promises us what he will do, there's only suffering. There's no hope. And suffering is meaningless. But with God, even suffering, not only is it explained, but it's filled with hope. So Peter says, don't be surprised. Secondly, he says, rejoice. Verse 13, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Be glad. Rejoice. Now, I know that this is not our first and natural reaction to pain and suffering. It's not. It's just not. Uh, our first reaction is to pray for relief from pain and suffering, isn't it? 90% of the times when I'm asked to pray, it's to relieve suffering. And that's natural because suffering hurts. If pain and suffering are real. Death is real. We grieve the brokenness of the world. But Peter's saying there's another kind of response available to us, a supernatural reaction. That when we suffer, we are in a position of honor because Christ himself suffered in the flesh. He's teaching us that suffering can deepen our faith, that suffering can purify our faith, that suffering leads to humility and is where we discover the sustaining power of the Spirit of God. He's saying that through faith, even our suffering is redemptive. And that leads to the final thing he says here is simply trust. In verse 19, he writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter boils it all down to one word. Trust. Trust that God is good. Trust that God is sovereign. Trust that God promises that suffering is not the final word. That the final word is glory. Years ago, um, I had the privilege of traveling to Russia with a team from Chapel Street, then FBCG, to visit uh, what we called our sister church, called Transfiguration Baptist Church in Samara, about 400 miles southeast of Moscow. Got a chance to preach in their uh, services, and it was an incredible experience through an interpreter and all that. But I, they invited me to come back in the afternoon for a small little ordination service. They were ordaining a young pastor, I think just 22 years old, named Victor, who had gone through all his preparations, a brilliant young man. And they were sending him out to plant a new church. I remember two things about that ordination service. One is that uh, he was being sent out to plant this new church. And... They weren't sending like 100 people with him, like a core team and a children's director and a worship pastor. They weren't, it was just him. They had rented an empty room on a street in the city, and they told him to go open the windows and start preaching. That was the plan. I was like, whoa, I'm not sure I could do that. 
Open the windows, just preach till people come in. That, that's your plan. The second thing I remember was, was his ordination vows. Uh, we all stood around him, the pastor and some of the elders and myself. We put our hands on this young man, and they led him through the ordination vows. And they were very similar to the vows that I went through years ago, that Pastor Jeff went through, Pastor Bruce, all of us go through to be ordained. You know, be promised to be faithful to Christ, faithful to shepherd his church, faithful to preach his word. And then, as the translator whispered to me, I heard a phrase that was not part of my ordination. And this is what it was. Do promise to be faithful even unto suffering and death. That wasn't in my ordination. I asked Bruce, I asked Jeff, it wasn't in theirs either. And it hit me, this young man was making that vow because in his world, in his culture at that time, it was not only possible, but it was probable that he was going to be persecuted, that he was going to experience suffering and pain just because he preached the gospel. And he made that promise. And it struck me that that young man was prepared in a way that I had not been prepared. And it struck me to this day that he was prepared for suffering and therefore also prepared for glory. That's what Peter's talking about. He says, be prepared. Jesus says, be prepared. Will you bow with me as I close? We prepare our hearts for communion. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the words you've spoken today through your servant Peter. We thank you that your suffering purchased for us our redemption and our hope. We thank you that your resurrection redeems our suffering, all of it, with the great hope of glory. So remind us again in just a few moments through bread and cup of your great love for us and the great hope that we have in you. The hope of glory that allows us to live as your people in a hopeless and hostile world and to live with great joy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.